an enrichment that comes just for having time in the church, you know, year in and year out. And so those of you that have been here for, for several years, it's, 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 it's fun, isn't it? To, the ones who are a little bit bigger remember when they were the smaller ones, you know. And then now they're the bigger ones and the, the younger ones coming in behind them. And, and uh, Bria, somehow Bria got center stage, didn't she? Nice. So I think Jason and Amy, there must have been some bribes there going along with the uh, kids' ministries, which, which we're not above, by the way, just thrown out for the record. No, just kidding, just kidding. Hey, let me do a couple of other thank yous, too, because we've had a big weekend. We had just a phenomenal time, men, this morning for breakfast. Did we not? It was just amazing. So I just want to thank Tyler for the team he put together for that. And uh, I had a verse, too, that just got dropped on my heart for the, the men who were there this morning. Cam did an amazing job sharing his story this, this comes out of Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And I think all of us uh, who were there this morning could say that uh, we've, we've shaved six-tenths of a second off of our time. Amen? Come on. It was a good time. So one, one more thank you uh, to Jenna and, uh, and I think April and Carrie. Just they did an amazing job just for last night for the leaders, uh, annual leaders Christmas thing that we had together. And they've been working hard all week just to pull all that together. So Jenna, you do an amazing job here. Director of operations right there. So you can clap for Jenna. So I actually have a quiz in here we're going to start with tonight. It's, it's in the leather binder, right? All right. So you, you got your thinking caps on? So we, we are starting a new series tonight called It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, if you've not watched this classic uh, yet, I hope you do because we're going to have some fun with it next week. Uh, doing some participation and some giveaways. So you're going to need to either, whether it's Hulu or Netflix or, 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 or whether you're still in the VCR era, whatever it takes, right? to uh, spend some time with It's a Wonderful Life. I, we, we love this because this is the vision statement for the church. It's heaven now, heaven forever. Right? The, 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 we don't have to wait as followers of Christ until we breathe our last and find ourselves in eternity with God to experience the goodness of God for the first time. Psalm 27, 13, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There is a, a wonder to life that we can discover as followers of Christ. And so we're going to be honing in on one of the 24 virtues that we talk about as a church, 24 virtues that we believe is the perfect portrait of the character of Christ. We're going to be drilling down on one of those that need to be present in our lives if we're going to experience the wonderful life that Christ promised. So, all right, but to get us thinking along the right direction, because we're going to be talking about the Christmas narrative uh, throughout the series, we're going to be out of Matthew chapter 2, we thought we would test your, your, your knowledge of the story of the birth of Christ. We did this quiz three years ago uh, as a church, and, and, and most of us, including myself, we did very poor. We did very poor. So, so I have the answers, and I still did poor. That's how bad it was, right? So, so if, if you get all of them right, there's nine questions. Chris House, come on, gentleman that was just right here, just came out with his EP, right? Four songs on here. Sing Jesus. So you get, if you get all of them right, you're going to get one of these tonight. And if we run out, which I don't think that we will, not that I don't have faith in you, but if we run out, then we'll order some more. So I think I have about 10 of them up here. So there are nine questions that are all true-false. So you got a 50-50 shot, okay? you got a 50-50 chance, and, and, and we're going to do a show of hands, and then you're just going to keep track on your own. You're on your honor, and you are in church. Need I say more, right? All right, so, so you're going to keep track of your, of your own answers, and you can keep track of, of, of nine. Are, are you ready? All right. Do I need to ask everybody to turn off their mobile devices? Right? No, no Googling. All right. An angel told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. How many people say true? Raise your hand. All right. How many people would say false? All right. It is false. The angel, they, were, they went to Bethlehem because Caesar, right? There was a decree from Caesar. All right. I know some of you are already feeling defeated. Okay. All right. And you are. Just so you know. All right. All right. Number two. The Magi began following the star as it moved when they saw it in the east. So the star was moving and they followed it on the move. The star was moving and that's how they came when they first saw it in the east. True or false? Anybody say true? All right, anybody say false? 
All right? It is false. The star was fixed in the sky. It doesn't talk about the star moving until after they got to Jerusalem. It wasn't until after they left Herod that the star actually began to move and they began to fall. Who's, who's 0 for 2? Anybody? All right. Come on. There you go. There you go. All right. So number three, there is no innkeeper in the story of Jesus' birth. No innkeeper in the story of Jesus' birth. How many people say true? How many people say false? Right. It is true. There's the mention of an inn, but there's no mention of an innkeeper. Anybody? Anybody got all of them right so far? Nice. Come on. All right. All right. Number five. The shepherds found Jesus in a stable. How many people say true? How many people say false? It is false. There's a mention of a manger. There's no mention of a stable, but we assume there was a stable because there's a mention of a manger. All right, number six. Sheep, goats, and donkeys were all with Jesus at his birth. How many trues? How many falses? Yeah, false. There's no mention of any animals. Right? None. No mention of any of them. Because there was a manger, people assumed there was a stable. And because they assumed there was a stable. See? All of your Sunday school teachers lied to you when you were coming along. Those flannel stories, that's why we don't do them. All right. Number seven. Joseph walked while Mary rode a donkey as they left for Bethlehem. How many people say true? How many people say false? Yeah, we're not given any details about, about him walking or sitting or riding. And, all right. Sorry. Number eight. We only got two more. The, the Magi actually translates kings. How many people say true? People say true. How many people say false? Yeah, because it translates what? Yeah, astronomer or astrologer. All right, last one. There were three, there were three Magi. There were three Magi. How many people say true? How many people say false? Yeah, we don't know, right? There were three what? There were three gifts, but we don't know. We don't know whether or not... They, 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 were, they, were, they were three people. There could have been five that brought three gifts, right? Two said, I knew I should have brought something, right? So there could have been some of that that's just left out. We won't know until we get to All right, so who, who here, I want you to stand up so we can, we can all see who our, our scholars are. All right, oh, nice, come on. Who else? Bring it. Nate Nowatney. Vanessa asked me before the service, she said, do we get one of those? I said, that depends on how good you do on the quiz. So she's not standing, is she? No. Darn. All right, I'm working my way around. I'm working my way around. Who? Uh, Rusty. Well played. Anybody over here? Yeah? And pass that back. And one more. We got a young person. Ethan, did you get it? Really? You get them all right? Nice. Michaud family representing. Nice. Well done. Well done. Hey, these are available. I'm just throwing that out there. So if... Um, you want to get one of those, you can talk to Chris. We'd love to put one in your hand. So, all right, hey, let's, 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 let's go to this next step. Let's go to the next step. When, 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 when you look into the Christmas story, so we had some fun with the Christmas story. And if you've not read the Christmas story in a long time, you should do it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the Gospels, you can read in each one of those. And you put it together and you, you find the whole, you find the complete narrative. But, but what we believe as a church that as you begin to dig into the story, as you begin to dig into the, into the narrative of Scripture, there is truth in there that we find that we're supposed to live by. We talked about that in the series that we just wrapped up Circle Maker when we got into Acts chapter 2. And what I believe, which we're going to dig around into some tonight, as we look into the story of the birth of Jesus, into the narrative of the birth of Jesus, we find some people whose lives themselves tell a story. And through their lives, we find, a, we find our story. As we look at their life, we find some things about our life and what we believe about the, tension, the intentionality of God is that the people he put into the story and the lives that they were living and their responses to Christ teach us something about our own hearts. There are five different responses that we see in five groups of people. And I had originally planned of these just being some introductory remarks for the message, but in preparing and praying over it this week, I really felt like God spoke to my heart that we were supposed to camp out in these a little bit, and uh, especially in one of them, which is exciting because the wrap-up that Vanessa brought, she didn't know that I was going to focus in on one of these five, and it's really the wrap-up that she brought. And so that's a little commentary, just to know that we just believe in the prophetic flow that God brings to our services. So, uh, so the first one is this, this idea that the shepherd that there is a response of adoration that's supposed to come from our lives when we have a revelation of who Christ is, right? When we come to a place in our life where we realize that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, there should be something inside of our hearts that says, I have to worship Him. 
There should be something inside of us that is, that you just, you cannot contain it. There should be something inside of you that wells up that says, I have to celebrate and sing and rejoice because of the glory of God that I now have a revelation of. Now we can't have that kind of revelation apart from the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that, that no person can call Jesus Lord but by the power of the Holy Spirit. But when the Spirit of God opens your eyes to see who Christ is, there should be something that begins to stir in your heart. We see it as Jesus came when we celebrated every year just before Easter, right on, on Palm Sunday, where, where, they, where the religious leaders told Jesus, hey, tell these people to stop praising you. And he said, if they don't, the rocks would cry out. When we are in the presence of the glory of the Son of God, there should be a song that wells up inside of our heart, and we cannot be denied as we sing it. I'm, I'm pressing you with that. I'm going to press you in some of these things tonight, because it might be that you're here and you would say, well, that's not my personality. It might be that you would be here and that you would say, well, that's not really who I am. It might be that you would say, as you're here tonight, well, well Fred, that's, I can see how other people can get excited about Christ. Or I can see how other people want to worship him with great expression. But that's not who God made me to be. We, I, I want to break that myth over your life tonight. It, it doesn't necessarily mean God's going to change your personality, but, but even the shyest, quietest personality should have a song in their heart when they have a revelation of the glory of Christ. I'm going to read to you out of Revelation chapter 4. Almost every time we step into a place of worship, I, I, I try to envision, envision this text. Revelation 4. This is John. He's on the island of Patmos. He's having this, this incredible vision of heaven. He says, Then I looked and I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, Come up here. Right? That's our vision for 2014 to come up. Come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit. And I saw a throne in heaven and something sitting on it. And the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And 24 thrones surrounded him. And 24 elders sat on them. And they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Now from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the seven-fold Spirit of God. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Listen to what it says. In the center and around the throne were four living beings. And it goes on to describe what each of those, those looked like. And I'm jumping down to, to the bottom of verse 8. Day after day and night after night they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's a great phrase to memorize as you're stepping into a place of worship. To, so, because you're joining in with something that's happening in heaven. Verse 9, and whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, 23 of the elders fall down and worship the one sitting, but there's one who never does because he's just a little bit shy. It doesn't say that, does it? It says that all 24, in fact, if you keep reading in Revelation, you find that all of heaven is enthralled in worship. That all of heaven's heart and attention is captured by the glory of God. Now, we're not ever going to see to that extent here. We're giving glimpses of it through God's word. Or we have moments like we had tonight, did we not? Where you just, you feel you're awakened to the spirit of God in such a profound way. There is something inside of us that has got to yield to those moments and step into the place of an expression. It might not mean that you're gonna be the person that, that dances or jumps, but I'm telling you for all of us, there is another step of expression that God wants to bring us to. That we can never use our personality, we can never use our own uh, concerns about being conspicuous in front of other people as justification to deny the glory of Christ that he deserves. There should be something inside of us that erupts, irrespective of who we are, regardless of how we would describe ourselves. It doesn't matter what Myers-Briggs says about us. You with me? When we come into the presence of the glory of the creator of the universe, all of that is set aside. Even if for you, the only next step is to just go palms up, then take that step, right? 
Even if the only next step for you is to close your eyes and just begin to quietly sing with the worship that you hear and just stepping into, I am telling you there is a something of God that is waiting for you that you awaken yourself to when you begin to worship the creator of the universe. It's in the story of Jesus' birth for a reason. The shepherds reveal to us a response that we are supposed to bring when we too realize that there is a Savior that is born into this world. Joseph and Mary. I think Joseph and Mary speak to us about an evangelism response. I'm not going to spend as much time on this one. Joseph and Mary, you know, everywhere they went, they took Jesus with them. Now, you might say, well, Fred, that's stretching it a little bit, right? Because, you know, they were his parents, right? And, and even today, we recognize you're supposed to, you know, take your kids with you when you go to places, especially when they're little, like Jesus was little, right? But I think that, that God, even in that story, is trying to teach us something. Because in parenting, if you're, if, if you're parenting the way that you're supposed to parent, if you're having children in the season that God's called you to have them the way that you're supposed to, yeah, are there difficult days? Sure there are. But even on those days, there's something inside of you that says it is a privilege to parent these children. Even on the toughest days, and all of us have had tough days, and some of you have, have had some really tough days, I know, right? Even on those days, you, you, you have this sense of God picked me to lead these children. There is such a sacred privilege that we have to be able to take these children with us throughout our life. And in this this picture of parenting, the metaphor, the story, their story gives us a story. It's the story of the response that we're supposed to have, that there should be something inside of us that when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, that it is a privilege that we have to carry him with him wherever we go, that when we're going to a place that maybe we're not supposed to be going to, right? You know what I'm talking about here for some of you, that you would say, I really don't want to bring Jesus with me. I want to leave him behind. And we end up living this compartmentalized life where I'm going to bring Jesus with me to some places, but I'm not going to bring him with me to other places. And that's not the heart of a follower of Christ. There's supposed to be a decompartmentalization of our Christianity that comes with the maturing of our devotion where we say, no matter where I am, no matter what life role I'm walking in, No no matter what crowd I'm a part of, that Jesus is with me, and that's where evangelism begins. That's where it all starts, by being a witness to the world, is living with a self-awareness that I am a Christian first, and everything else that you are is second place. Oh, I like this one. Anna and Simeon. I'm not giving you the text for these on purpose, so you'll do some digging on your own. Anna and Simeon are both a prophet and a prophetess that that God had spoken to them and said, you will not die before you see the birth of the Savior of the world. Can you imagine God giving you a promise like that? And they lived with that belief. They lived with that sense of expectation. They lived knowing that their purpose for walking on this earth was there was going to come a moment in time before they breathed their last to bring a prophetic declaration over a child who was going to become the Messiah. Can you imagine what it was like for them to step into that moment? That feeling that they had when you find it in Scripture and you read that story, I want you to think about what it must have been like for them to say, I am standing in the moment that God put me on the earth to do. And when you read that, I hope that there is a righteous jealousness that wells up inside of your heart to say, I want to know what that feels like because God wants you to know what that feels like because he's got a plan and a destiny for you and he wants you to be able to step into moments in this life where you look into your own heart and say, I was put on this earth for this. And I am telling you that when that happens, there is a purpose response. There is something that comes up inside of you that says, Jesus, you died for me, and I can walk in the reason that I have breath. I'm telling you, it changes your life when you live with that kind of expectation. I'm going to guess that Anna and Simeon had hard days. 
They lived in an ancient world. It was a difficult place. We think it's, it's hard, hard where we live, right? We, we joke. I heard somebody use the phrase, I think it was Emily Lee joking about something about first, that's a first world problem, right? And so that's become a phrase now in our home where we're just complaining about something, right? Well, that is such a first world complaint, right? And so they, didn't, they lived in an ancient time. They lived in a hard, I would imagine that they were difficult days. You know what helps to carry you through difficult days? It's not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. But one of the things that helps you through difficult days is knowing that you have a divine purpose. One of the things that helps carry you through hardship is when there's something inside of you that's carrying a promise that says, God, put me here for a reason, and I'm staying, and I'm going to smile, and I'm going to endure, and I'm going to let joy well up inside of my heart because I have a divine purpose, even though my temporal circumstance might, you know the next word. All right. All right, I want to talk about this one for a little bit. This is the one when they got up and some of the songs that they were singing, I was like, oh, we're, we're on to something tonight. So, so all week, just praying over this point. I, you know, again, these were just introductory comments, and we were just going to do the, the, the last one. I had three points I wanted to do tonight. I have conversations like that with God often, right, where God says, no, you, I'm just, you're just going to do this part. And I'm like, but I've been working on these other two a lot, you know. Can I show them to you? Let me just show them to you, right, as if, right. And he's like, no, this is what we want to do. And so then through the worship set, you know, you just, those moments where you step and say, God, you're so good. You, you just, we just, we want to be a people that when he says something to us, we say yes, sir, to him. We just say yes or to him. So, so this one, I like this one. Because, because the other four, you're going to see the fifth one in a minute, are all things that we're supposed to grow in. This one, we're supposed to grow out of. So the, all of these responses speak to our humanity. All of these responses speak to who we are in response to a revelation of who Christ is. We're supposed to have an adoration response. Something inside of us is supposed to be stirred as we're enamored by the glory of God. There's supposed to be something inside of us that counts it a privilege to carry him with us wherever we go. There's supposed to be something inside of us that says, I have a divine purpose. Jesus put me in this world for a reason. And there is also something inside of us that is a Herod. You and I were born as kings and we like to be in charge. You and I were born as kings and we like to be in control. You, you and I were born as kings over our own domain, over our own heart, and we, we like it when we get to do what we want, right? And if anybody here doesn't struggle with that, then, then you cannot come back to this church anymore because you're going to make the rest of us look bad, right? You with me? In our humanity, we, we, we like it to be our way. It's, it's, you don't have to teach children how to be selfish, if you need to learn about that, you can see Laura Nawat at the end of the service. She'll sign you up for nursery duty, okay? After you get through the background check. All right. And God does not want you to stop being a king. He just wants you to be a king that surrendered to a higher Lord. It's a different way of thinking, right? Jesus doesn't want to come in and conquer us. He wants us to be a king. He wants us to have dominion over ourselves. He wants us to live in this life not as a victim, not, not, as, not as, as if you can think back to ancient times, right? People that were not born into royalty, they just, they just had to go along with whatever was given to them. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I've created you to be. You're supposed to have dominion over yourself. You're supposed to have some sense of being in control over yourself. And as you are in control of yourself, you lead yourself as you are submitted to Christ. That the Holy Spirit becomes the dominant influencer of your will. But at the end of the day, we have to choose. At the end of the day, we have to self-govern. At the end of the day, we have to do the things that we're supposed to do and not do the things that we're not supposed to do. And I think sometimes Christians get into trouble because they make a vow of devotion to Christ. And then they think that Christ is just going to come in and do all of this for them. And then they get stuck in a place of mediocrity. They get stuck in a place of disappointment where Christ is saying to them all along, no, no, you've got things that you, you've got to work. You've got to be in control of yourself. You have to say no when temptation comes. You've got to say yes when my spirit prompts you. I want you to be a king that is surrendered to a higher Lord. I think oftentimes in our, in our life that that I heard a pastor say at a conference several years ago, working, they were, they were teaching on the different names of God. Have you ever heard a message on that? You know, like Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah Jireh, all those different Hebrew names. It's a great study of the Bible. He said that the, the, the forgotten one is Jehovah Sneaky, right? Because God's always sneaking up on you and doing things that, that, that you, weren't, you weren't planning on. And, 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 if, and, and we, we laugh at that. It is, it is, it, it's, it's comical, but, but what, this is what we, what we know, is that in our hearts, that if we're not careful we begin to develop a sense of entitlement 
that God has to come to us for permission. See, it's a tricky thing being a king. It's a tricky thing governing. It's a tricky thing ruling. Is that, that we are supposed to govern and rule, but we are not supposed to forget our place of surrender at the same time. And we live our lives in this healthy tension. That, that, that when God sneaks up on us or where God, God puts us in situations that we would not have chosen to, to be in ourselves, that there's something inside of us that says, God, I trust in your sovereignty. When I don't understand what you're doing with your hand, I always trust what's in your heart because you are a perfect father and you always have my best interest in mind. So I was digging around this week in Romans 8. Anybody like Romans 8? Come on. As you're reading through the Bible in the year. We've been in Romans 8 a little bit this week and Many people are familiar with how it starts, right? So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. Maybe if you grew up in the King James like I did, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm going to keep reading here a little bit. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do, and he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 4. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So I was reading that this week and just kind of praying on that and just meditating on it. And, uh, and I really felt like God prompted my heart to, to dig around into that word condemnation a little bit. And, and so we've, we've taught on that. We, we mention this verse often in our, in our scriptures. But we tend to always reference it in the same way that most people reference it. When we talk about there's no condemnation in Christ. About this idea of self-condemnation, right? We, we talk about this idea that I don't have to feel condemned. We connect it to the concept of shame. If you've got a, a, a history like I do that's a little bit ugly. That we can get sucked into sometimes through the temptation of the devil by, by, by just feeling shame from our past and we have to reconnect with the forgiveness of God. Sometimes we need people who love us to come alongside of us and say those things don't define you anymore. You're with me? Maybe, maybe you have been in a conversation like that and you reached for Romans 8.1 and you said, hey, there's no condemnation, right? There's, you don't have to wrestle with the shame. It's been forgiven, right? Anybody ever had someone minister to you in that way, just loving on you like that? And and we connect with this idea of condemnation as far as self-condemnation. We understand this idea about self-pity and and shame and things like that, but there's another whole side to this word that doesn't get talked about a lot. The other side of this word, and when you hear it, you're going to go, well, of course that's there, right? But we just focus on the other one so much. The other side of this word, it's it's, it's a very legal word. So if you were to commit a crime and you were to go to court, and let's say it was an agreed crime. Let's say it was a serious crime. You, you, the judge would condemn you to a sentence that would be allowed by law if you were found guilty by a jury of your peers. You with me? So you might be condemned to a life of imprisonment. You might be condemned to death if your crime was serious enough. And that whole thought is such a prominent part of this text. Because when you read Romans 7, and you read Romans 8, and you read Romans 9, you begin to realize that Paul is saying, hey, when the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you are no longer condemned to a life of being helpless in the face of temptation. He says, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You're not just forgiven from your past, but you've been empowered in your future to not ever have to go back to that old way of living. This idea is there is therefore now no condemnation. It means that you and I, as a king, this king, when it is submitted to the king of kings, That we have every power and authority that we need to face every temptation that will ever come our way. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has taken you, but as such as is common to man, but will with the temptation make a way to escape so that you might be able to bear it. There is supposed to be something inside of us as devoted followers of Christ that says that I am a king. 
I am a king that is surrendered to a higher Lord. And as I go out and have dominion over myself and over my life, as the Holy Spirit is the dominant influencer of my will, that I don't feel condemnation over my past, and I am certainly not condemned any longer to a way of life, that I am powerless in the face of temptation, that God has given me everything that I need to say no to what I see today, need to say no to, and yes, what I need to say yes to. This when Vanessa gets up and she's doing the wrap-up, and we haven't talked about any of that, and she's talking about the lordship of Christ. I'm like, preach that, sister, come on. It's going to be in the sermon, right? All right. It's good stuff. Does anybody know if it's supposed to rain tonight? I'm just not sure. I wasn't sure about that. Sure about the magi. The magi. There's a material response that we're supposed to have to Christ. And this series, this is what we're going to be digging around in, is the virtue of generosity. It's striking to me that in the story of the birth of Jesus, he makes this so prominent. It's striking to me. You, you think about all of the themes that God could have reached for. You think about all the things that we've talked to already. This idea about adoration and evangelism and purpose and, and, and suspicion, right? All of us say, come on, preach that. And we get to this one and we go, hey, whoa, slow down a little bit there, right? Don't get carried away. But God says, hey, I want the world to understand that you can't be one of mine and not be a generous person. The, the two go hand in hand. If you're going to be in the family, you've got to represent the family. And representing the family means that generosity is a word that defines who you are. It doesn't necessarily mean that your spiritual gift is going to be giving. Those, those people give in a different way. They, it's, it's the same with compassion, right? People that don't move in the spiritual gift of compassion, which the Bible talks about, don't have permission to say, I don't have to be compassionate because that's not my gift, right? Those people just move at a different level of compassion. But all of us have to at least strive for the basic minimum, which is just the character threshold. There is a character threshold of generosity that is supposed to define who we are. And God says, hey, I'm going to make it one of the five. I'm going to put it right in the narrative. I'm going to stick it right in the middle. In fact, I would argue it's the crescendo of the moment. Matthew 2. Come on, God's word is good, isn't it? Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men, or the Magi, from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as, one every, as everyone else was in Jerusalem, because when the king was not happy, no one was happy, and everyone was in danger, especially Herod, because he was a crazy king. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities. That comes out of Micah. And then he, they pair it with a, another uh, prophecy. I think it comes out of 2 Samuel. It says, of Judah, for a ruler will come to you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. So by the time the Magi got there, Jesus was probably a, a, a toddler. He, was probably, he, was probably, he could have been a few years old, some scholars believe. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too, which we know is a lie. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. And it went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child was. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them? And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. It's a wonderful life. They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. And the text could have just stopped there and we would have thought nothing less. The story could have stopped there and we would have said, oh, right? But it doesn't. It says they opened their treasure chests 
And they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When you have a revelation of the glory of Christ, there is a material response that is supposed to flow out of our lives. My material response is simply the outflow of generosity from my life in light of who I believe Jesus to be. As a church, this is one of the things that we're called to do. This is part of what discipleship is all about, is to, is to, is to encourage you to live up to the truth that you already know and to teach you the truths that you don't yet have, right? Is that, that we want to be a church, that, that our vow of devotion to Christ is passion-filled, moment-by-moment governing and life-defining. We want to be a people who are living out what we believe to be true. And when we have a revelation of who Christ is, there is supposed to be a material response, a generosity that flows from it. We're not just talking about the church. We're not talking about giving to the church tonight. That's going to be a part of the series. I'm just talking about generosity in general, right? All of us, every day of our lives, are filled with moments to be generous towards other people. So the time I have left, I'm just doing one. I had three tonight. I'm going to do one, this idea of my heart. I think one of the reasons why a material response is such an important thing that God wants us to get a hold of is because your material response enables you to see inside of your immaterial self. Your material response enables you to see inside of your immaterial self. If you've ever been injured and had an x-ray, I remember years ago, right, as you get older, you get injured doing things that you used to not get injured at. I was playing dodgeball. We lived in the inner city, and I was in my 30s, and I just went to move out of the way of the ball, and my knee made this horrible noise, right? I wrestled and played soccer, did all these things, and I'm playing dodgeball with a nine-year-old, right? Like, oh, I think I just blew out my knee. So I go get an MRI, and sure enough, my meniscus, that little disc of cartilage on the inside of my left knee, it was like someone had taken a fillet knife and just filleted it and had these two flaps, and the doctor shows it to me, you know, and says, this is why you hurt so much right here. We've got to go in and clean that up, right? You, you, you get it. You can see inside of your body with modern science when there's something wrong with you. This book is filled with all kinds of instruction for how you're supposed to be able to see inside of your immaterial self so that we can be active in fixing the things that need to be fixed. My material response enables me to see inside of my heart, my spiritual heart, my spiritual condition, my spiritual self. When I look at how I do with my material things, when I look at my generosity that flows from my life, it enables me to look back inside of myself. It enables you to look back inside of yourself. It enables us to look inside of each other. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We look at the things we treasure. It tells us about our heart. We look at the things we value. We look at the things we prioritize. We look at the things that are important to us, and that teaches us something about what's on the inside. Listen to this verse in Titus. Paul, right, raising up all these young people that are supposed to take the gospel on the next generation. Titus is one of these young men. Timothy is one of these young men. He's writing Titus this letter. In verse 116, it says, They claim to know God, Titus, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable. They are disobedient, and they are unfit for doing anything good. That's some strong language in the Bible. Are you with me? Think about Paul as being the great grace giver to the world, right? Real grace demands things of us. He's saying, Titus, hey, when people walk around talking about I believe this and I believe that, hey, that's great. Watch them for a little while and see if what they do confirms what they say. It's interesting. The Bible says that out of the overflow of of our heart, our mouth speaks. But that's not the only thing that the Bible says about how we see into the heart, right? We also see into the heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Titus 1.16. What about the Magi? On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him, and then they opened up their treasures. We see inside of people in this moment. We get to see like an x-ray inside of their immaterial. We get to see the condition of their heart and what they believe about God in this moment where they give these incredible gifts. And these gifts were amazing, amazing gifts. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I like to imagine stories of how things got set up. And that's because I'm weird that way. But, but 
you have weird things about you too. And, and, and so and if you don't, I've got a list I keep right over here. No, I'm just kidding, right? So, so this one, that I, I can't, so this one thing is I think to myself, when the wise men saw the star and they were packing, right? At some point they had to pack, did they not? Who's a packer here? I'm a packer, right? I don't travel light. Sometimes I have more suitcases than my wife. Any other men in here? All right, come on, Corey. I know there's two of us. All right. Right? At some point they had to pack. At some point, they had to, right, they didn't say they went to the marketplace once they got there and bought. They brought some things with them, right? So they're thinking, what am I going to bring? We, we think that it's about a king. We've got we've to be prepared. You don't walk into the presence of a king and not get ready. So we'll, we'll call this first magi, we'll call him Bob, right? So Bob's thinking, what should I bring? Well, Bob, he played, he played it safe. Because in ancient times, if you're going to go visit a king, you bring gold. You didn't bring silver, you didn't bring bronze, you, you brought gold. Gold was the gift for the king of the day. So I can imagine Larry and George are saying, Bob, what are you bringing? I'm bringing gold. They're thinking, you're playing it safe. There's nothing wrong with that. Playing it safe, right? I've got my gold. We're going to visit the king. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him. And then he turns to Larry and say, because with guys there's always a competition, right? He's thinking, I hope his gift isn't better than mine. And so Larry says, well, I'm bringing frankincense. Bob would have said, oh, that's, that's good, right? Because in some cultures... They believe that their king is a god, right? And frankincense was used almost exclusively in religious ceremonies, right? So Larry's feeling pretty good about himself, right? I'm just, anybody can bring gold, but I'm saying this king, he's a god. When I open up my gift, everybody else that's there is going to say, oh, he brought the best gift, right? Because these are men at the end of the day, right? They are wise men, but they are, are not immune to the fallacies of our humanity, and that's called the ego. All right, so... So then they turn to George. They say, George, what are you bringing? And George says, I'm going to bring myrrh. And they go, no, no, really, George, what are you going to bring? Right? Because myrrh was used for one reason. It was to embalm dead bodies. And they said, if you want to bring myrrh, you can, but you're not going in with us. Right? You're, because, because if you were to bring myrrh to a king, culturally, what you would be saying is, I hope you die soon. Because you don't deserve the throne. These gifts communicated something in his day. And what we know, whether they knew it or not, the Spirit of God was giving every one of their gifts a prophetic voice. When my heart is right with God, and we know their heart was right with God because God enabled us to see inside of their heart through what they did, when they bowed before him, we know that their heart was true. We know that their heart was one of reverence to the creator of the universe. And so when you walk in a place where the king of who you are is submitted to the king of kings, not only do you have a sense of power over temptation, God uses your generosity in a prophetic way. Generosity just by itself from the ugly meanest, just nasty person in the world, come on, that generosity is still generosity, right? But it's not a candidate for prophecy. When I walk with God, right? When I walk with God, my generosity becomes a candidate to proclaim things that I might not even know is happening. I don't think these, I don't think George and Larry and Bob had any idea. I think they thought he was a king. I think they thought he was the king of the Jews. I would imagine it wasn't until after his demise, and I like to think that he was a man of God and he's in heaven, that finally he realized how prophetic that last gift was. We know that he is, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians chapter 2 talks about one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We talk about frankincense. We talk about his divinity. And the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being the great high priest, the great mediator between God and man. And then if you want to look at his destiny, you, you can turn to, if you've never read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, you should read those tonight before you go to bed. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 that prophetically speaks centuries before it happened, specific details of what was going to happen to Jesus. He came to die for the sins of the world. When our heart is in the right place, our gifts say something to the people who receive them. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'll never for, ever forget. Shot Mangum. It's a dear brother. He's got to be in his 80s. 
And uh, they were a family that were leaders in the church that, that I, my formative years as a follower of Christ, we were at a church for 17 years before coming here. And they, they, that was just an anchor family and just story. He was always telling stories. My, my favorite, all, when I first started going to the church, they had a men's breakfast like we had today. And Shot was the guest speaker. I kid you not. It was in the bulletin. And, and so they were talking about where it was going to be and, and what time and what it was going to cost. And they said, and the guest speaker will be Shot. Right? Right printed, right in the bulletin. We thought, wow, that's a pretty serious, Right? The guest speaker will be shot, okay? You're either not getting it or it's not as funny as I thought it was. All right, okay. Misprints. All right, so somebody should, have, somebody should have proofread that a little better. So I remember Shot telling the story when they had first started going to the church in, in Mechanicsville. And they had fallen on hard times as, as a family, fallen on hard times as a family. And, and uh, there was a Sunday night service, and they had chosen to not go to it. It was right around Christmas time uh, because they weren't going to be able to do Christmas for their family. And they were just depressed. They were sad. They were brokenhearted. They, they had young kids. And uh, so they stayed at home that night. And uh, true story. And after they got the kids to bed, Shot and Gloria were just in their den just praying. Just praying. Crying with each other. Just what's it going to be like for our kids? They're, gonna, they're not going to have anything. Right? And they came up with a number. They said, God, if, if, if you could just make a way came up with an actual figure, just begin to pray. I, this is a true story. And as, as they were praying in their den, just crying, there was a knock at the door. There was one of the deacons at the church was standing at their door, right at that moment, with an envelope. And said, we were at the service tonight, and some, somebody just, just stood up in the, in the service during our time where we were just asking people if God would speak into them. And somebody just stood up in the middle of the service and said, you know, I feel like we're supposed to take up an offering for Shot and Gloria tonight. I don't know why. And they had not, talk, they had not talked about this publicly to anybody. They just said, I just, we just feel like we're supposed to do this for them, just to love on them as a family. And everybody said, come on, let's do it, right? So they passed the offering plate around. They take up this offering. I, I kid you not, almost to, the, almost to the penny, it was the dollar figure that they had been praying for that night. Don't tell me that generosity can't have a prophetic voice. I'm telling you, this idea of generosity, there should be something inside of us that says, I want to be generous simply just because Christ was, right? There should be something inside, I want to be generous just because it's the character of Christ. But there's also a place that we should break into where we say, God, what are you going to do with this gift, right? There should be a sense of anticipation. There should be a sense of excitement. I can't wait to step into moments of generosity to be used by God. Can you imagine what it spoke to Shot and Gloria on that night? Can you imagine? A million sermons could not have taught them what they discovered about the faithfulness of God on that night. Let me share this statement with you as you stand. Stand with me as we worship. The Magi gave these gifts only believing that he would become the king of the Jews. Now that we understand that he is the king of kings, one with God, and died for our sins, what sort of generosity should define us? Let's worship together. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name will sing like never before oh my soul worship your holy name bless the lord oh my soul Worship His holy name. We'll sing like never before. Oh, my soul, I worship Your holy name. Let's sing that song to the Father. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing a new song. Sing like never before. Oh, my 
Oh, oh, oh. 